0: You're listening to Never Sleeps Network. This episode of Speech Bubble is sponsored by Harry Tarantula. Harry Tarantula still has all your Star Wars miniatures, all your comic books, and all your Magic the Gathering tournaments every day of the week. But now they're making it easier for wheelchair users to come into their store because they're building an accessible washroom. This one hits home for me, you guys. I'm a person who uses a mobility scooter, and it's just easier for me to use the washroom when it's accessible. And there's a lot of comic shops, even in downtown Toronto, that don't have accessible washrooms. So I'm very proud to announce that uh, Harry Tarantula is doing what they need to do to move the needle forward and make their place more accessible for everyone. They're also building a cafe. Uh, This has been a really uh, successful thing around Toronto, marrying uh, coffee with comics, and uh, Harry Tarantula is following suit. So come on down to 3456 Young Street, show them your support, and tell them Aaron sent you. Hey, fan people. If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you know I'm always talking about the connection between comics and coffee. It's because I love coffee. I do my French press every morning. I do the pour-over. That's why we've teamed with the superheroes at BAM Coffee, BAMCoffee.ca. Their roaster Aaron is Canadian, he's from Saskatchewan, and he's a geek like us. That's why he's putting his clean, ethically sourced coffee in something called a BAM box. He's combining coffee with the geek swag that I know our listeners are going to love. That's 700 grams or 350 grams of coffee, with art prints by local Canadian comic artists, a limited edition mug, I mean, what more could you ask for? If you want to try it, he's giving a special promo code to Speech Bubble listeners, SB15. So go to bamcoffee.ca, type in SB15 at checkout, and get 15% off your first BAM box. Hey, maybe you want to just try the coffee. That's okay, too. He'll send you 150 grams of coffee, and all you got to pay for is the shipping. I mean, that's a pretty amazing deal. So go to bamcoffee.ca and tell Aaron that Aaron sent you.
1: You're listening to Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one-on-one with Toronto's comic book luminaries. Here's your host, Aaron Broverman. Godspeed, old chum.
0: Hey, fam, people. Welcome to another episode of Speech Bubble. I am your host, Aaron Broverman. You found us on Never Sleeps Network at NeverSleepsNetwork.com. Don't forget to follow us on social media at SpeechbubblePod. Don't forget to rate and review our show on Apple Podcast. If you do, I will send you a comic from our personal collection. Uh, Anything you want, just get in touch. Let me know you've uh, written a review and you will get a comic. Uh, Don't forget to also visit our sponsors, Harry Tarantula. Go buy your comics there, people. They've been supporting us from the beginning, and uh, you got to show Leon some love. Go over there, get your comics. Also, don't forget to use promo code SB15 when you're visiting BAM Coffee, BAMCoffee.ca, and you'll get 15% off any BAM box. With me today, we have Nick Mandag. Nick is a... Schuster Award and Doug Wright Award-nominated cartoonist. Uh, We're celebrating his debut graphic novel, The Follies of Richard Wadsworth from Drawn and Quarterly. Uh, He's also done some shorter comics, Streakers, Facility Integrity, and The Libertarian. Uh, He comes highly recommended from some of our past guests, Jason Kiefer and Chester Brown. Please welcome Nick Mandag. How are you, Nick?
1: I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for having me.
0: You're so welcome. Uh, I really enjoyed uh, this book, The Follies of Richard Wadsworth. I thought it was hilarious. Uh, I wasn't expecting to laugh out loud, but I definitely did. Um, but, in, but before we get into that, I want to get to know you a little bit.
1: Uh, where did you grow up? I grew up in Mississauga. So, just a little west from here, and um, yeah, I grew up in Mississauga, and um, I guess I moved here in my early 20s, 22, 23, something like that, Um, after after I finished university. um, I went to university in Mississauga, stayed with my parents during that time, and um, when I graduated, I moved down here. So I've been in the GTA my whole life, Toronto area my whole life.
0: Nice. So what was your early life like? Like, what did your parents do? What was it like growing up?
1: Uh, It was a pretty typical, um, you know, um, very middle class upbringing. Um, It was... um, yeah, it was a good environment to grow up in, um, very very stable. Um, my parents, um, my dad, uh, he worked in, um, he was a product manager, so he, he sold, um, he'd be in charge of um, you know, food products that they would make and then they would sell them to food companies. Okay. And uh, my mom was a teaching assistant um. Yeah, and um, I was always encouraged to make art, so uh, both from my parents and my teachers at school, so it was a very encouraging environment in terms of making art. I always felt like it was a good thing to do, I was never felt like it was a weird thing to do, so um, yeah, it was a good, good, s- stable upbringing, yeah nice
0: so in terms of making art do you mean like drawing and stuff
1: yeah well I I remember well in in grade school I remember making I got an early introduction to um, comics because or combining words and pictures because we would always each year we would have to make these picture books uh, starting from grade one so you know it would be like a kid's book so there'd be text, you'd write text and then you'd do a drawing to go with it. Okay. Anything you wanted? Yeah, yeah. So I got an early taste for sort of self-publishing. We would laminate the books and everything. Wow. And um, I remember, you know, it was very thrilling for me even as a six or seven year old to make my own books. So, um, And um, because I was so interested in that, um, my teachers were very encouraging and uh, as well as my parents, and so I just got sort of an early taste for making books and combining pictures and words, and I, I think I always drew as well. I was always interested in drawing and and um, and comedy, so um, I was always doing that stuff right from the beginning. Um, yeah.
0: Nice. So, in terms of like these early books, do you remember any of the subjects you covered?
1: Um, The only one I remember is I don't really recall the details. I remember one story was just about a guy getting stretched. (laughs) He would, he was just about a guy running through a field or something and then he's his body just started stretching and so his arms got too long and he just became all sort of uh contorted and his head stretched and everything it was very strange yeah but it, the only thing he says in that book is well the it ends with him saying oh no i'm getting stretched <laughs> so that's yeah, it was in very very know. strange. Yeah. yeah, yeah, totally. But that's the one I remember because it was so strange. Yeah, but I don't really recall any of the other stories, but um, that's the one that <laughs> sticks in my head.
0: Cool. You said you were a fan of comedy. What uh, comedians were you into?
1: Um, well, the thing that I was really into as a kid was the Ren and Stimpy show. Oh, that's awesome. Um, that's what got me doing comics initially as well as The Simpsons, but mostly Ren and Stimpy. Um, so yeah, I liked I liked Ren and Stimpy, and it was mainly cartoon shows, uh, but Ren and Stimpy, The Simpsons, and then Mad Magazine and Cracked Magazine. Nice. So, and there were other comedic influences. I loved Jim Carrey movies when I was a kid. Um, and um, what else? Yeah, lots of sitcoms. I remember I really loved the sitcom Perfect Strangers as a kid.
0: Oh, Bronson so. Pinchot. Yes, yeah.
1: yes, and Larry. Yeah. So, um, Larry and Balky, I loved that show as a kid. Um, so, yeah, I was always into sitcoms and cartoon shows. And, nice. Yeah.
0: You said that Ren and Stimpy got you into making comics, that in The Simpsons. Was it the the type of humor? I mean, there are two different kinds of types of humor. Like, Ren and Stimpy is sort of more a gross-out kind of humor thing, I would say. And, like, The Simpsons has more of, a, like, a satirical uh, bent to it. Yeah. Know?
1: Well, I mean, The Simpsons appeals to me more as an adult. Right. As a kid, Ren and Stimpy appealed appeal to me much more, although I still love the early Ren and Stimpy show. Right. Um, but no the gross out humor was what appealed to me as a 10 year old um the simpsons i you know i obviously a lot of those jokes went over my head but yeah. not the, the ones that didn't i really loved as well so yeah. I, I i was also able to get that show to some degree as a kid and
0: but. i feel like in the late 80s and early 90s like kids watched the simpsons just because they weren't allowed to watch it yeah you know like there was a ton of like teachers didn't want you watching the simpsons uh the Bart Simpson shirts you had to like turn them inside out in class oh, and yeah stuff because you know they didn't want you wearing some stuff <laughs> like it was super like subversive like, it Bart was Simpson subversive was, like, anarchist uh icon or that's something. that's
1: coming back to me a little bit when now that you mentioned yeah. that how Bart Simpson was sort of seen as a bad influence I think yeah is that what it was yeah because yeah. Totally. <laughs> he was a little anarchist or whatever yeah uh, uh, caused lots of mayhem and trouble Mm -hmm. he was a bad influence
0: yeah like i didn't get to watch the simpsons until maybe i was like 11 or 12 and there was a simpsons marathon uh, on vhs at a sleepaway camp that i went to and we stayed up late watching the simpsons so even then i had to watch it like away from my parents they couldn't know about it and Mm. then eventually i got older and got to got to watch it but at first, it was like, don't, wa- you know, don't watch The Simpsons.
1: Yeah, I don't think... That sounds like a... I was definitely allowed to watch The Simpsons. Okay. I think, I think my mom might have been a little wary about it, but mm. I was allowed to watch it. Cool. Um, but, uh, but Ren and Stimpy was also subversive yeah. because of the gross out here. Yeah, for sure. And, like, uh, the
0: zoom-ins. Zoom yeah, the... it
1: was gross. The 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 bodily functions that you don't I hadn't seen on TV uh, all, all the gross stuff yeah. um, and um, I I don't know it was just hilarious to me so yeah. it was also kind of subversive because I think Ren and Stimpy might have been my introduction or one of my introductions to the idea that you could make fun of things like um, you know they would make fun of pop culture in that show. Um, they'd make fun of ads and and um you know television t v shows other you know the typical cartoon show, yeah, like the muddy mud skipper show, sort right. of a parody of of a typical cartoon show, yeah, and, there um, was
0: the powdered toast man, yeah,
1: they made fun of ads, yeah, and there um, was
0: the log Everybody yes. loves the log, yeah, Look, yeah you know. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty awesome. Like that was a go. That was a good like toy parody. I think the log. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah.
1: So you're drawing as a kid.
0: Were you Were you into comics?
1: Um. I at first I was. I, I was, I, I wasn't buying comic books. Okay. I never, uh, uh, that didn't start until my late teens, really. Right. Cause, um, cause you
0: said mad and cracked and that was available on like the 7-Eleven news. Yeah. So. I
1: only, I only read mad and cracked. I subscribed to both and I would read the comics in the, uh, Toronto star newspaper. I, I liked a couple of them, um, but I didn't buy comic books. Mm. Uh, I just never... I think it's because I was always drawn to humor. And I knew that I thought of comic books as being action and 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 fantasy. Right. Which didn't appeal to me. And so. the
0: comics that you were into it was more of a casual, int- casual interest.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I was never... I didn't become a collector. I'm still not much of a collector. But I never started buying actual comic books until my late teens right
0: okay yeah so so what made you start buying actual comic books
1: i by um getting into the under discovering the underground cartoonists um that's how i would have that's when i would have started buying comic books so like robert crumb and yeah i was i i was watching tv late at night and i just sort of stumbled across the crumb documentary Um, and discovered that there was this thing called Underground Comics, which was mind-blowing to me at that time. And how old were you? 17. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then the next day I went to uh, Chapters, and I found uh, this big R. Crumb collection um, and, uh, and bought that. And so that was my introduction to... Um, underground comics, and then from there I discover, I found out about the Beguiling and the Silver Snail, and and um, you know all the comic shops in Toronto, Harry Tarantula, and just started um, started my collection.
0: And so you were collecting like only underground comics, like uh, Charles Burns and like that kind of stuff. Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, I started with Crum and Zap and like Gilbert Shelton and those people. Yeah, in the 70s. And then from then I moved on to the, the, some of the 90s cartoonists like um, Dan Klaus and Peter Begg and Chester Brown and Seth and Julie say those people, Charles Burns. Nice. Um, so, yeah. And um, when I discovered that stuff, that's when I started making comics again because I had actually... I, I had taken a break in high school to to make my own homemade animated movies. Oh, what kind of um, movies? Um, it they were like they were fairly short, like 15 minutes, but it would take me about a year to make each one. And I would use my dad's video camera, um, and I would make a lot of use of cutouts and stuff. So, sort like of
0: cardboard or.
1: No, just paper, paper cutouts okay. where so I could easily move the arms and legs rather than draw a whole new figure each time. Right. Um, so I was actually making my own homemade animated movies throughout high school because I was still focused on animation and cartoon shows. And then when I discovered... The underground and, comics, and you weren't and even
0: doing it like drawing. You were like, or like flipping it, flipping the book, or doing the flip book thing. You were doing like actual cutouts and like posing them and stuff, sort of like claymation kind of. Yeah,
1: but it would be a mix of it would be a mix of cutouts and actual animation. Oh, I see. So it would be both, um, but um, yeah, and they were very. Ren and Stimpy inspired sort of gross-out humor, right? Type of thing that teenage boys like. Um, Yeah. yeah. But then when I discovered the underground comics, I decided to go back to actual paper comics with panels and word bubbles and all that stuff. Easier, right? Yeah, and 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 more sort of aesthetically pleasing in the end to have that solid book in the end or that or that finished comic strip that is actually exists in physical space right i and like the the physicality of books and comics
0: and you could do it faster it doesn't take you a year to do it it,
1: takes, it would take a little faster yeah 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 uh, i wouldn't have to painstakingly it wouldn't take me a week to draw someone walking across a sidewalk or something so yeah yeah cool
0: but it's cool that you had like this creative bent i, re- I really like that what were some of your early efforts in terms of making uh, comics
1: um, I, um, well, the, wh- when I was, I think I did my first comic when I was 11 or so and, um, I had the, uh, yeah, I had this, uh, nerd character who, uh, would, uh, you know, um, Get himself into various jams and have to figure out a solution. It was very, very Ren and Stimpy inspired. A lot of gross out humor. Slapstick. Yeah. yeah. Lots of... Lots Violence. Of, lots of fart <laughs> jokes and stuff, yeah. you know. Um, yeah. So, it, yeah, the early comics before high school were a lot of that stuff. Yeah. And then um, in high school, it was... This pretty much the same stuff just it was animated um, and then and then in my late teens started making my own underground comics and mimicking that stuff Nice uh, What kind of
0: guy were you in high school like were you like a geeky kind of yeah kid or?
1: yeah I was a pretty I was not a very popular guy um, I had two friends and we pretty much kept to ourselves We were sort of our own clique. And we didn't really associate with other people too much. Um, so I was pretty cut off, a little isolated in high school. Mm-hmm. Not a whole lot to do except stay in your room most nights and and make comics so um, which is often the case, yeah, with cartoonists
0: yeah I think I think a lot of people that are into comics like. They're the geeky ones or the ones who can like entertain themselves and like don't need other people and stuff.
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah I was definitely able to entertain myself and um mm. Yeah, there was there was there was a decent amount of time in, in high school to to work on comics for sure.
0: Nice. Yeah. So when you started making your own underground comics, like what were they about?
1: Oh, I was mimicking I was mimicking the you know, the underground cartoonist from the 60s, um, uh, lots of nudity and swearing and graphic sexual content and radical politics. I was trying to be a rebel.
0: Did you put a lot of like severity in your line work? Like, I noticed like with Crumb, he's got a lot of like hair and like yes yeah, so very, like, i was
1: i started out drawing like them too yeah. with a lot of detail in detail yeah. um messy mm-hmm. uh the underground cartoonists are messy mm-hmm. and so i was drawing messy and putting in lots of details and little you know if i was drawing a face there'd be lots of hairs and pimples and yeah. stuff and mm-hmm. very detailed mm-hmm. of course now i things are much cleaner which I think most cartoonists sort of tend towards. It tends to get a little... Most cartoonists, their drawing style tends to get a little simpler and cleaner as the years go by, I find. Why do you think that is? Um, there's... I don't know. There's some sort of simplification process that happens, maybe. And you just... Maybe you decide if these details aren't necessary, Um, and if you're not a visually focused cartoonist and I'm not, it's the drawing is more to serve the writing. I guess, I guess for me, I just decided the details aren't all that necessary. Right. And when you Um, have a
0: deadline and you're actually producing books, like, you know, you, there's a more economical, uh, mindset that you have to kind of have in order to finish things. Right. Yeah.
1: Or even if you don't have deadlines, but you just are thinking, okay, over the long term, if I can just sort of simplify things a bit, maybe I can do another couple books. And that's more important to me than making this detailed art. Um, But I don't know. Yeah, there's... um, I I mean, for me, I just, I prefer the look of clean comics in general. Mm -hmm. I tend to like cartoonists who draw in in a cleaner style. Your style reminded me of Chester a lot. Yeah, yeah. Do you get the, that a lot, or? No, but I mean, I can see, I can see the comparison in terms of the clean,
0: the cleanliness that we're talking about here. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: for sure, yeah. Um, and also, I do a lot of shading with my pen, mm-hmm. which is, which is what something Chester does as well. Right. Um, is it, is it interesting to be?
0: Like you were you were reading him, you were influenced by him, and like all the other underground cartoonists. And now you know him. Like, is that a whole different, weird thing of like not well,
1: not anymore, not anymore. but at, it was a at little first. at first, it was surreal, yeah, a little yeah. bit because he uh yeah, he um he, I was a big fan, obviously, right. And uh, he was one of my well, he is one of my favorites. And then, Um, yeah, I, I I met him um, when he was doing the writers in residence. He was a writer in residence at the North York library. Right. Okay. And so I met him through that. So you could submit your comics uh, to him and then he would select people who he wanted to, who he thought were promising, I guess. Right. And then you would go to see him and. And um, he would critique your work. Or when I went to see him, he had I was like, well, so do you have any suggestions or feedback?" And he was like, "No." <laughs> so all he said was, uh, "I don't know. I think he said something. Oh, this is some interesting stuff, or this is some this, this is pretty disturbing."
0: And were you already working on like um, comics and like stuff that would eventually be published when you met him?
1: yeah i was always i i was already self-publishing zines at that point okay yeah okay so Um, when did you get
0: to that point like you're you're influenced by like the underground cartoonists. you're doing sort of stuff that's like similar to them in style and that kind of thing your style becomes a little more minimal a little more clean when are you like uh you know i i want to do this? Like, I want to actually publish my own... own Well,
1: as soon as I realized it was possible to self-publish your own comic books...
0: What did it take uh, for you to realize that? Was there an experience? Well,
1: when I... I, Right from the... Well, as soon as I saw the Crumb documentary, I realized that was... It was possible to do that because Crumb had self-published his own books... Right. ...and sold them on a street corner. Mm -hmm. um, And he had done it all himself. So... Right away, I knew that was a possibility. And well, soon after that, I, reali- I realized there were these things called zines, so you didn't even have to go to a professional printer. You could, you know, um, photocopy your own books. So as soon as I discovered you could do that, I mean, I started doing that right away. I think I was 19 when I made my first zine. Do you know what it was? Yeah, it was called Useless Comics number one.
0: Oh, kind of like, like something that the '70s uh, cartoonists would do, like some sort of, you know, um, like kind of comic anthology type type thing, like Zap Comics or whatever. Yeah. Useless Comics.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was it was like a one man anthology. So it was like various short strips, really terrible stuff. It's not going to see the light of day again. Right. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I did Useless Comics number one and two and then i did a uh, f- bunch more things did you try to, to sell them at any point yeah yeah i brought them to the beguiling and um because they had an an independent rack and um so i uh I gave them books on consignment did they did they sell no like <laughs> you know maybe maybe a few a year or something right some, I sold a few. Uh, yeah, not, and then I would go to zine fairs and I would sell them there. Was Canzine around at that time? Canzine was around, I believe, at that time. Although, I think it was. Maybe, maybe it came around a little later. I remember there was something called this Toronto Small Press Fair. Okay. And there was something called Cut and Paste, Cut and Paste Fest. And I think those are the two I remember. So I'd always do those. And Kanzine might have come a little later. I can't quite remember when... But I was doing Kanzine as well whenever that came on the scene. Nice. Um,
0: so you're kind of doing this, but then what are you doing, like, in the rest of your life?
1: I, yeah, well, I was... Um, I went to university. So when I was putting out my first zines, I was also in university at the Mississauga campus of U of T. Where were you Uh, studying? I was studying philosophy. Um, I started out as an art major, and then I switched to philosophy in my second year because um, I wasn't very impressed with university art classes because it's all theory and not a lot of practical instruction
0: right and you're already doing your own stuff anyway yeah
1: and I just wasn't learning anything uh, so I I switched my major to philosophy so I actually have uh have my degree in in philosophy
0: philosophy kind of Um, factors in pretty heavily uh into the follies of Richard Wadsworth I mean he is a philosophy teacher and there's some heavy like uh, academic, like philosophical theory in that, in, in the book and that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, well. you know, you also studied, I guess, at Arendelle college.
1: Too? Yeah. Yeah.
0: Okay. So what, what appealed to you about philosophy?
1: Um, it was something new. Um, it was something, I, I think it came down to the fact that in first year I just had, I was just, I just found myself in a really interesting first-year philosophy course. I i had one of those professors who was sort of very charismatic and interesting and engaging. And it could have been any subject, really. It could have been psychology or English that I ended up majoring in. But uh, I was just really, I loved my first-year philosophy course. And I just sort of decided to take, to switch to that on an impulse. Um... I mean it's in it was interesting to me at the time. Um try and, you know, figure things out. What is this stuff all about? Were I you was interested young, in like moral quandaries and stuff. Yeah, like at that. that time I was I was interested in not everything. Moral questions, religious stuff, uh Metaphysical stuff, I don't know I yeah the not so, I'm reality not really yeah sort of I'm not so much interested in that stuff anymore in fact, I haven't actually read a word of philosophy since I graduated oh. fifteen or fourteen years ago or whatever it was, but as a I was interested in it at the time, so but yeah, I guess what the thing that appealed to me about it was you know, I was looking for answers. what is all this stuff I, I want answers. And uh, I didn't get really too many, but...
0: <laughs> I remember, like, whenever I took a philosophy course, like, I obviously took journalism, but, you know, it was a p- pretty heavy, like, liberal arts uh, emphasis beyond that. And whenever I took philosophy, I always used to think of the Matrix because you, I would think of, like, Plato's Parable of the Cave mm-hmm. and how, like, that was a really big, like, philosophical uh, thing, like a tenant, I would say, I guess. So I, I was always like, I was always thinking about like the Matrix, and that sort of got me into into philosophy and got me interested in philosophy mm-hmm. too. It was like a weird way to get into something that is just academic.
1: Yeah, you know. yeah, that's yeah. I I I really loved Plato right. in in school. That was, I loved the cave stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I love what is
0: real, what is not. Yeah, we're all sleeping. Yeah, that's
1: that's all fascinating stuff, especially to a twenty year old.
0: It's like, it's like kind of where like woke and unwoke come from come from in a way, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? So yeah, yeah, totally. So yeah, I mean, the reason I ask you that is because this book, like the Richard Wadsworth, is a philosophy teacher. So and you like there there are like some pretty heavy like. Uh, when he's teaching, I mean, you obviously know your stuff, right?
1: Well, no, I make it look like I do. Okay, but I mean, so I mean, where's the what's like the magic? I, like I said, I, I actually haven't read right. any philosophy in like 15 years or 14 years. Right. So I'm actually not even really qualified anymore to talk about philosophy because I I've forgotten most of it. Right. But but it, so the but there there's a lot of acad- there's academic stuff in the book, but that's more like um. I wouldn't read too much into that because it's I just sort of put that in there to make the story believable ah. sort of to create atmosphere um, and it sets up some of the jokes it sets it does. up the high mindedness and the loftiness of the world that this character is in, and then when you crash when you things come crashing down, it's funnier so. It's sort of to set up the jokes a lot of for the most part and to create a believable atmosphere.
0: Yeah, because he seems like such a together person, but he's really not. He's just awkward and weird and nibishy yeah. and and really bizarre and in an like off putting way in like an off way.
1: Yeah, yeah. Is well he he I mean the philosophy part serves a bit of a function because He's a character who wants to believe in this orderly universe because his personal life is so chaotic. Right. And his philosophy and this, this stable philosophy, worldview he's constructed for himself gives him a bit of comfort. Uh, it's, it's a way to compensate sort of for all the chaos of his personal life. Well, and he life. seems
0: to deny the chaos. Like, like for him, everything's fine. But, yeah. but you can tell that like the edges are fraying mm-hmm. uh, really a lot. Mm -hmm. Uh, Before we get too deep into it though like you did you know put together some other things before like I mentioned off the top like streakers and the libertarian and facility integrity were those just you know self-published shorts or
1: streakers those stories were all between 40 and 60 pages long okay and they each appeared as sort of like a fat comic book or like a slim graphic novel. Um, Streakers was self-published. Um, and then The Libertarian and Facility Integrity was published by Pigeon Press, um, and uh, who, which was run by Alvin, the late Alvin Buenaventura. Right. And um, so I did a couple, I did those two books with him and then I also before this book I did a mini comic a few years ago called The Oaf which uh, was self-published.
0: Nice. Um, so would you say that you've always done this? Like that you or was there a point where like you're publishing your own zines and stuff and it gets a little bit more
1: serious? Uh, what do you mean by more serious? Like in
0: terms of like I'm publishing my own zines, I'm like photocopying stuff But now I want to actually try to like approach a publisher and like do my own comics and stuff. Like, is there a threshold that you had to reach in your own mind in terms of like, you know, I'm self-publishing and now like I actually want to do this like for for a living? Well,
1: I was I was overly confident from the beginning. So when even when I was 17, I was sending submissions to publishers not realizing that my stuff was not mature enough to even be considered by the likes of Fanagraphics or D&Q. But I was pretty cocky early on and I was sending submissions thinking, you know, someone might want to publish that early stuff. Of course, no one did. Um, Did but I think I was always sort of overly confident. Okay. So I was, I was always, yeah. Um, I, so I was always ambitious, um, but eventually I just got started getting a little more attention okay. for my comics. I guess starting with Streakers, I started getting a bit of attention, um, and um, after Streakers, um, uh, Alvin approached me about doing a book. Nice.
0: So, so tell me about Streakers for people that haven't, uh, haven't read it or what's what sort of the elevator pitch of Streakers?
1: Streakers is about three guys, three friends who are obsessed with streaking. Uh, they, they are connoisseurs of streaking and they approach it as sort of like an art form, as an underappreciated art form. Nice. And they have their own Streakers Appreciation Society which they're the only members right and they meet up and they they plan out their next streaks and in intricate detail take every little detail and nuance into account and they're just always planning their next streak and yeah they're um one guy uh has never actually streaked before because he's too shy but he's he's like a streaker at heart in spirit. Um, and spirit, um, and it's yeah. So that's the basic idea behind that one. Right. Um, I did that one like it's almost ten years old. That story. It's like nine years ago now. That story.
0: And you you started getting attention for it. Where where was the first sort uh, of? A well, buzz I got a, from? I
1: got a Zarek grant for that one, oh, which okay. was it's doesn't exist anymore Peter was, Laird's fund yeah the guy one of the guys who created the Teenage Ninja Turtles yeah started the Zara grant which was a self-publishing grant so they would give you money to self-publish your own book mm-hmm. um so I think I actually got that on the last year it existed
0: oh under the wire
1: um yeah so I I got to it was my first non-zine that I made I got, since I had money for the grant, I got to make a very nice professionally printed book.
0: Nice. And you just and submitted it knowing that it was out there, like the Zurich yeah, grant? Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Because as you say, you were pretty cocky back in the day. <laughs> yeah, the day. well,
1: <laughs> Well, let's just say I was ambitious. Ambitious. I was always ambitious, yeah. Hmm. Um, cool.
0: So that's awesome. Like you, you won. Did that sort of bolster your confidence even more to keep pursuing this
1: it did but also uh people actually liked streakers a lot um and it was the first thing that i had done that i was really proud of right so just i don't know just the positive feedback from other from friends and from other cartoonists that i respected i think that's that really boosted my confidence um as well as getting the grant for it
0: um, I, I wanted to ask you about like your humor and where it comes from because you seem like a pretty buttoned up guy yeah but then when oh, you yeah. read like your books <laughs> and stuff your humor is pretty absurd your humor is pretty like like you wouldn't expect it to come out of somebody like nick mandag like right no. now you know you're wearing like a business shirt you know yes. kind of thing and then and then I'm very it streakers right like that's awesome. There's
1: but a there's a disconnect between the personality that I present to most people and the content of my comics. Right. So where does that come from? Probably I'm rebelling a little bit in my comics because I am a fairly reserved person. And I feel like the... The uh, Wilder Nick Mandig sort of comes out in the comics because he is maybe a little suppressed in, <laughs> uh, in everyday life.
0: So do you so in a way when you were making streakers, did you wish you were an actual streaker? No, I've ne- <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's going a little far. No, I've never I've never had the desire to streak. Uh, maybe some part of me does. Right. I don't know. Yeah. I'm not conscious of any part of me that wants to get naked in public. Right. But the the germ of the
0: idea of streakers, were you watching old school? Like what, where did it come from?
1: I was, I was at a baseball game and some, it wasn't a streaker who ran onto the field, but just a guy in clothes. It should have been, I wish it had been a streaker. Oh, cool. It was just a guy who ran onto the field because he wanted attention and then I just thought about streaking because of that, and I just thought the idea occurred to me that that would be a good premise for a comedy um, to have these just a book about guys who love streaking, um, but so treat it was, with a
0: sort of ha- academic high-mindedness. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: Um, so it was just I don't know the yeah the the idea just occurred to me watching a baseball game one day.
0: Nice. So you win the Zurich Grand. People really like streakers. Uh and are you selling like are you bringing your comics to the Beguiling again for for streakers or like is this actually yes. been, like how how is it being distributed to people? It
1: got distributed by Diamond. Okay. Um and so it it appeared in comic shops across North America. It was not exactly a hot seller, but um I think I only sent one order to Diamond, but right. uh but it got it did get sort of wider distribution, and also, um, also John Porcelino, the cartoonist, has a distribution company, and he was selling Streakers as well through his distribution. What, what is so that was, out of? Uh, it's called Spit and a Half, okay. and it's out of Illinois. He lives so in it's a, so you're in the U.S.
0: basically. Because of uh, John Porcelain, yeah, and
1: yeah, and Diamond. Right. I, I think I probably ended up selling more comics through John than through Diamond. Right. At least of Streakers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Diamond and John got got Streakers out a bit more, and uh, I was also bringing it to the beguiling. And
0: Do stuff. you think your like what level of popularity you have is sort of a wor- like a underground word of mouth type of thing, like a, like a shut up little man or like. That kind of thing or
1: yeah I mean I hope th- I hope the word spreads a little more with this book yeah but of course. I up to this point I'm I'm sort of only known within the comics community right it's mostly other cartoonists who know about me right Um. um so I yeah hopefully it's spreads a little further but yeah it's I feel like it's mo- mostly the comics community at this point so would you consider speakers like a small
0: break? or like your big break or like what was there momentum there?
1: What came next? There was, it was kind of a break because it, it got enough attention so that people in the States were reading it. And, um, I started, um, doing strips. I've, in the believer because of streakers because Alvin Brunaventura was editing the comic section of the believer and he really liked streakers. And so he invited me to do strips for the believer and which was the first time I really got published. Um, and, um, what was it like working for somebody else? Um, it was, I had complete freedom. Mm-hmm. Um, I got to just do whatever I want, and they and they would publish it. So um, it was good. It was good getting more exposure through that. Um, cool. Yeah.
0: Um, and then he wanted to do books with you, right? Mm-hmm. You said earlier.
1: Yeah, I did two books with him.
0: Okay. Yeah. Nice. And that was like um, the libertarian. And that
1: was uh, yeah. First, it was facility integrity. Okay. And then I had actually self-published the libertarian as a zine earlier on and then he republished that as a book oh so like back
0: Um, in your sort of late teens early 20s no 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 no. i had
1: i no um so the chronology is i did streakers when i was about 27 28 and then i did the libertarian after that and then facility integrity okay and so the facility integrity was the first one he published, and then after that he republished the Libertarian as a as a as a real book. So imme-
0: so immediately after um, after Streakers, the Libertarian, you sort of go back to self publishing, right? Like you're. I you're, did initially, yeah, yeah. 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 Because w- did it like peter out after a while, or like mm. you just didn't? You you were just like, this is what I do. I'm just going to self publish
1: did Did what peter out like in terms Sorry.
0: of di- like you didn't get picked up by a publisher or anything like that, it was just sort of like, okay, I'll just I'll no, just it, took while, it took a little while took a little while
1: for for that to happen okay, so i b in the meantime I had already t- put out another book, right, yeah, okay, yeah. so tell me about the libertarian it's um that's a book about a libertarian who becomes infatuated with a socialist and so he decides to pretend to be a socialist in order to win her over and (laughs) then hilarity ensues of course Um, um, love story of dichotomy and
0: yeah uh, I don't
1: know if you'd call it a love story but uh, (laughs) 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 uh, an infatuation story infatuated with her And he compromises on his ideals to try and win her over. Nice. Um, It's kind of cool. I really like that.
0: Um, And then, so, and then facility integrity, like, are we talking about like actual, like, building integrity in that title? That book is
1: about a large company. Okay. Who decides, in the interest of efficiency and productivity, decides that. It's necessary to start regulating its employees' bathroom habits. Oh, during working hours. In terms of how long they go there. In terms of, w- <laughs> in terms <laughs> of what you're allowed to do. <laughs> so, uh, so uh, it's they allow they decided that employees are wasting too much time doing number twos during working hours, and they got to put a stop to this. And so they. Ch- They they create this facility integrity policy, bathroom facility integrity policy, to um, to um, put an end to this free for all where employees are wasting much time on their smartphones in the bathroom stalls and stuff and
0: so as a result are people crapping their pants there, there's the a bit room? of that
1: yeah. yeah chaos ensues yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome um but they they still allow it but only during the lunch break and oh so there's ap- like a stampede during there's the lunch a stampede break? during the lunch, lunch break. break but you're not allowed to do it from like nine to twelve, and then from one to five, um. and they have um, bathroom monitors in the in the in working in the bathroom, one per each, one for the for the men's bathroom, one for the women's bathroom. And so the story centers on the guy who's in charge with monitoring the bathroom making sure people only do number 1 and not number 2. Wow,
0: bathroom fascist. Yes, like, yeah. Very, very interesting. Yeah. Where did that idea come from? Were you sitting on the toilet when you came up with that? I don't.
1: I think I'd come back from the toilet. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Wow, Close man. Close enough to be to being on the toilet. But I don't know. I The ideas just always come out of nowhere, and I was just, I had come from a bathroom break, I was at my desk at work, and I think it was during this big efficiency push at work maybe, and I just sort of put two and two together, and uh, I thought that would be a good premise for a comedy, Um, and uh, it turned out pretty well. Where'd you work at the time? Um, I at that time I was I was working at the at the Sears Canada office um, I've worked in a bunch of different offices and at that time I was working for Sears Canada um, doing doing accounting stuff oh, okay. yeah yeah
0: Wow so you're like you like the people that you see in like office space, but it's all in your head. It hasn't actually like escaped into like it's all and it's down in the comic kind of thing. You know what I mean? Have you seen the movie Office? Space? Yeah, I liked that movie. Yeah, yeah, I haven't
1: seen it in a while. But, yeah. Um, but why am I like that? Those people. Well, see? What seems like it seems
0: like you have the you have this subversive take, but it it all goes down on paper. It's not. Oh yeah. It doesn't. You're, there's no external acting out. You're no, like, you're acting out, but in the book, like
1: you know, you know what I, you know well, what yeah. you know what I mean. Well, yeah, that's that's where I'm. That's where I have my freedom in right. my art. You right. know, that's where I'm. That's where I'm free. Right.
0: So, um, so you get so these two things get published, and then this this is your debut long form graphic novel. Let's get into this because this is like. I think this is the first time like you're gonna get like widely known to a lot of people. Uh, it's three stories. You know, you have the follies of Richard Wadsworth, you have uh, the disciple at the end, and then in the middle, uh, it's like what's the title of the night one school. in the middle? Night school. Night school. Night yeah. school. I got confused because night school has this emphasis on discipline because there's like a there's like a uh, Fire chief who comes in as a sort of as a guest speaker for this like lecture, and he gets to uh, discipline the students if they're not listening to the teacher. Yeah, and it's very close to the disciple in terms of wording. So uh, I was like, I was like, yeah, it's not the disciplinarian, mm. but no, it's it's night school. Yeah. Um. Obviously, the longest one is the Follies of Richard Wadsworth. Um. Let's talk about that. Like. Where did like I I want to get into more like where this humor comes from like th- was this like your your take on like being part of the academic community in 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 philosophy school like do you have opinions about academics that you were trying to get out here or
1: a little bit I mean I, the main thing I'm thinking about when I'm when I'm trying to think of what I'm gonna draw next is just what will make for a funny story. Um, so I'm coming up and trying to come up with a premise that I think will be uh, will generate humor right. Uh, so that's always my main focus, although it always ends up being the case that other things get expressed along the way even though it's not necessarily what I'm focused on right But yeah I mean, I uh, how to how to put this I feel like um, I had a sort of a mixed experience with academia, with the academic world when I was in university. I was never I was sort of really into it at first and then sort of became a little disillusioned or became bored with it after a little bit and d- d- definitely decided I wouldn't continue with academia and get, uh, I wouldn't go to postgraduate school. I just, I, I, I figure, figured I decided four years was enough. What turned feel you like, off? Well, there's, uh, I, I started to feel that cause well, I was in philosophy and I just started, I felt at some point that the, f- the focus was just a little narrow. Some of m- my teachers I felt were sort of had sort of a, a narrow outlook on the world and, um, not all of them. Um, and not all philosophers are like that, but uh, Western philosophy is just so ra- hyper-rational, and um, it, it's uh, at the expense of other—it's rational—it's so rational that it's at the expense of other things that are important, and it's just sort of a narrow worldview, and I just sort of got— Little tired of that, I think. When it's and the feeling is sort of stuck with me. Yeah, um, and
0: it seems like you're doing that, but then also like you're taking the piss out of like the high-mindedness or like the self-importance. Yeah, in academics a lot.
1: yeah, yeah. I don't know where that comes from. I mean, it's it's an easy target for comedy to attack people who are pompous and pretentious. Right, um, right. And you see that everywhere. You don't just see that in academia, obviously. But, um, yeah, I think the main thing I was thinking was just what's gonna be uh um, what's gonna generate jokes? And um, the idea of like a dumb philosophy professor was just funny to me. Um, and um and yeah, uh, i it just seemed like an appropriate uh profession for this character because uh like yeah he's he's he he wants to believe in this orderly universe, and he builds up these ideas to sort of uh, compensate for the the chaos in his life, so it just made sense to have him be an academic because he um he was just a character who you know built up these uh, structures of belief for himself so and it's weird
0: because he he feels like he's so sophisticated and intelligent in his own mind but like socially he's completely inept and like he's the type of dude like i'll give you one example you know the philip professor is like he wants to go for lunch with him and they go for lunch and they go for lunch at like this uh you know family restaurant sort of pickle barrel equivalent equivalent kind of thing yeah and then he like he starts like mixing like what was it was it, it was like beer and and like cola together he or something? Uh,
1: he has his own cocktail which is called the wadsworth which is uh half beer half ginger ale yeah or seven up or something like that and um so yeah, he thinks of himself as being very sophisticated, but actually he's very lowbrow. Yeah, and the, uh, a,
0: a very dense. Very, very yeah, like, very like I don't yeah. even understand Star Wars. Like, no, the basic references of, of like Star Wars, he gets confused. Yes. over like may the force be with you. He, he
1: even though he's in, he's very familiar with the Star Wars uh, movies. At, the, at that restaurant when he sees a novelty t-shirt which says, may the fork be with you, he doesn't get how it's a Star Wars reference. And the colleague he's with has to point it out to him.
0: Right. Um, and he's, this is an academic. This is an intelligent person or yes, a he's, seemingly intelligent. Person. He's pretty dense. Yeah. You know, Somehow he's, dense. he's made it to this level. Somehow
1: he's made it as an academic, <laughs> even though he's really, really dumb. <laughs> exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. It's insane. Yeah.
0: And like confusing, there's a bit where he like confuses the Dean with the janitor because the, they, because they look the same.
1: Yeah. There's some, there's a mistaken identity. Uh, Right. Scene mix up. He um, mistakes the dean for the janitor and ends up uh, revealing some embarrassing and in- information, confidential information to the janitor. But then,
0: yeah, like you, you layer on this whole thing of like this dimness that he has, this whole like he just doesn't understand things that you think an academic should understand. And then also like there's sort of a woe is me. Like you get this you get this impression like that this isn't the first time that this has happened to him. No. Like this is like the third school that he's got kicked out of. Yeah, probably. he goes from
1: school to school and his yeah. contracts are never renewed and because, he, you know. Yeah,
0: and he's so dumb that he wonders like, what like, why does this happen to me? <laughs> like I'm gonna <laughs> well, you know, this he, time he will thinks, be different. He thinks
1: he he's finally figured things out. Right. Yeah. Right, he thinks that he can control things, but he can't.
0: And it's never his fault. It's always like there was some sort of weird technicality that must have got me fired, or, Mm -hmm. or like that kind, you know, that kind of thing. Like it wasn't Mm -hmm. my problem. No, it must have been something that I just didn't know or about the system or something like that. Yeah, yeah. He very much like blames circumstance. Yeah, yeah. For his (laughs) It's, (laughs) it's weird. And then you have this whole thing and it's like there's a certain style of humor that you have that no matter what topic you are addressing, it's sort of it's sort of kind of the same. It's like this weirdly subversive. It goes back to sort of the Ren and Snimpy thing because because there's there's a lot of like titillation and nudity in the stuff that you do. There's a lot like there's a lot of like weird things like the 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 fire chief who like who like you know has these like weird disciplinary tactics he makes some girl eat squirrels and like that that kind of like it gets it gets bizarre yeah and you're just not a bizarre dude like no you know, well we, uh,
1: yeah, i i no, no i don't come across as one right i, mean, I have yeah it's weird once you start taking a look inside but right. inside my brain but it, um, yeah. You know. Do
0: you take pride in that that like people see like this straight-laced guy but really you're just kind
1: of sick sometimes? It's uh I don't know if I take pride in it. I don't. It's um It's makes things fun, I guess, a little right. bit. It's fun to Surprise people, I guess right,
0: but uh, you're never like little do they know like mm. what I'm thinking like what I, what I'm thinking or whatever
1: i I mean I think that sometimes at work uh because I work in you know I do office work and right. it's sort of a stuffy environment, and I don't do or say i i there's i i there's a persona, I have my work persona which is the persona you take on in, you know, that you typically take on in at, in the workplace, which mm. is you don't, you know, do anything to stand out too much. Um, I think a lot, if my, some of my coworkers knew about my comics, they'd be a little shocked. They would not expect it because I do come across as being fairly straight-laced and... Little do some people know that I'm actually a little weird. <laughs> yeah,
0: I want. There's another aspect that sort of permeates this, and it's it's the relationship between uh, men and women and sex and how you deal with sex in some of these stories. Okay. Uh, first, we have you know Richard Wadsworth. He like one of the awkward social situations he gets himself in is he goes into a r- rub and tug. And it's one of his students who's doing the rub and tug for, for him yeah. or whatever, right? Yeah. And then in the disciple, which is the one about the the monks, it's a co-ed monastery, and there's one dude who gets like really awkward because he can't avoid having sexual feelings, and he's supposed to he's supposed to be meditating. Um, how do, would you say like sex played, played a role in these stories? How, why did you add it in the way that you did? What did you want to try to create? Um, like I have my theories, but I'm
1: not, I'm not sure. Well, I mean, he, um, I don't know if I had a purpose. Um, I mean, in, in the, in the Wadsworth story, he, um, he's a character in general who's always screwing things up. Right. And he's not a nice guy. No. You know, He's an unsavory guy. He's not a character that I like or that I expect the reader to like. And... So, not only does he say, not only is he dense and not only does he make a fool of himself, but he's kind of a shady guy and he does inappropriate stuff. And that's part of what gets him in trouble. Um, and that's part of his undoing. And so, um, um, so yeah, the, I mean, it's, it's, he's, uh, I, it was an, it, doing something, getting involved in an inappropriate way with your student. I mean, that was one of the things I could do to um, it was one of the inappropriate things I could get him to do to sort of cause his um, position to sort of unravel right. Um, it was it was another, along with all the other stuff that he does, it was another it was another you know screw up of his. Yeah, probably like um, the
0: most major and overt
1: of, yeah, of all of it them. It was the it was the big undoing. Right. And um in terms of the disciple story, uh I think that just that just came from the story itself because I got the idea to um do a comic about a co ed monastery where the monks are struggling to maintain their celibacy. And so of course sex is going to play a role in that story. This st- whole story is about the struggle to suppress sexual urges and sort of the folly about the folly of that. Yeah. You, so I don't know if there's much of a connection between the two stories or if I am commenting on anything on anything specifically. Um but yeah, I mean the disciple was just a story. The story itself is about suppressing sexual urges and the folly of that. Right. So I mean that's where the humor comes from, yeah, is the, the trying to suppress what you can't suppress, mm-hmm. so
0: and like Buddhists are all about meditation and concentration and whatever, so you want to introduce something that would like realistically take away their concentration, yeah, in a way yeah. that's believable right yeah mm-hmm. and and I guess that's the dichotomy that that's where the humor comes from like. Mm -hmm. like trying to meditate but there's a you know but there's a girl in front of you and you're attracted to them Mm -hmm. like that just that is funny Yeah, yeah yeah crazy so you you got this opportunity it's it's published by drawn and quarterly um how did how did uh how did that opportunity come to you to publish this book
1: um they they uh i they they approached me one day to see what i was working on and um uh and I, I showed them the first half or the first maybe 65 percent of Wadsworth and and they liked it and then um, which was great and then they uh, suggested uh, coming up with a couple more stories so it would be a book with Wadsworth plus a couple more stories to sort of make it bigger Pat it out yeah. a bit pat it up a bit Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, that was actually, that actually turned out well because, um, I was used to putting out short stories on their own, but I think I prefer waiting, like saving them up and then putting out a collection, um, cause it's just less production work to do. If you're gonna do a book after every short story, it's just so much. You're, doin', you're doing the post-production stuff each for each story. Right. If you save them up a bit, then you can just do. It's more efficient. So which so I prefer. I prefer that because I'm not a big fan of the post uh, the, the pre-print stage, uh, photoshopping and putting the files together and all that stuff. Right. But, um,
0: do you ever think that you do one story that's just like graphic novel length?
1: No, I. I it, it might happen one day. Uh, it's not gonna happen for a while, probably, because the next stories I'm planning are are also about fifty pages to sixty pages in length. But it, it, maybe someday. Yeah. And but is I that don't. just
0: because it's a it's a format you're used to?
1: I don't know. That's just how long my stories end up being. Mm-hmm. Um, I would never want to force a graphic novel to no, happen. No, well, of course not. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm all about letting the story be whatever it wants to be. So you've got to just, you can't interfere too much. And so my stories just always end up being between, you know, 30 to 70 pages. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, maybe one day I'll do a 200 page story. Who knows? But I don't have any immediate plans for that.
0: You seem really interested in like the, the, like playing with the dichotomy between order and chaos. Because you have like this straight laced academic who all this chaotic stuff he that he introduces into his own life you have a monastery and then you have like a you have like a monkey that's like that's like studying at the the monastery and like monkeys are kind of jokesters and like symbol of symbols of chaos and that sort of thing yeah is is that even accurate for me that's very
1: yeah you've put your finger on it like i i never consciously set out to do this but you're right at the heart of every story I do is, well, I don't know how you can describe it a number of ways, order and chaos, or I think of it sort of in terms of that every story I do is sort of at the heart, sort of about the conflict between nature and the man-made, or the unconscious and the conscious self. Right. Or you could say between order and chaos, uh, where chaos is nature and order is how we Try and plan everything, and subdue chaos, and right. Try and come up with our structures. And know? if you
0: want to extrapolate that, like you sort of symbolize it in your own life, like your sure. working life is yeah. order, and your mental it's, life is.
1: I'm very, or- I'm a very orderly and reserved person, right. but there's a there's an ape deep within who right. wants to get out sometimes. So yeah, it, it, Yeah, you're right. You put your finger on it, and and it's sort of a reflection of my psychology. That's my personality, yeah. It was never something I I set out to do, but it always turns out that if an idea appeals to me, you've always got that sort of con. If an if an idea, if I like an idea and I actually like it enough to draw it, it's pretty much guaranteed that the the nugget of that idea is sort of this conflict. And that's what appeals to me. And that's why I do these stories.
0: And at this point with, you know, Dronic Quarterly is a pretty huge uh, indie comic publisher. At this point, would you say that you have a cult following?
1: Um, It's hard to know. I I mean, I definitely have fans. Right. And, uh, yeah, uh, maybe like a very small cult following it makes sense to say i Mm -hmm. i mean i there there's a small little army out there who really likes my stuff and who's always you know looking for the next book eager for the next book um it's hard to say how i mean i hope i hope the audience will grow Mm. i would say it's a sort of a yeah, it's a small following at this point, but I do have people. I do have fans, yeah.
0: And in terms of drawing style, do you think it's going to continue this way? Like, how, how did that develop? We, we mentioned minimalist off the top, but, like, how did you get there? And, like, are you comfortable with where you are now in terms of your artistic? I would like to be, things? I would
1: like to improve, you know, uh... I've been doing more life drawing recently um, as a way to sort of uh, continue to improve. I mean, I'm I'm happy with my style, my sort of clean style. Uh, but I would like to become more technically proficient. I'd like to just be a better drawer. So I hope to just continue to improve my general skills. Right but um and my style will probably continue to slowly evolve and change right. but I unless
0: you do a lot of hatching in the backgrounds and stuff is that is that on purpose
1: yeah I just like the look of getting a gray tone with with a pen nib and with hatching uh, rather than um, a wash so I just li- I just like the look of that yeah. um so but I don't think I don't think too much about the art because I'm I'm more focused on the writing and the art is just yeah to serve the writing.
0: The word bowls are really dense. Like you got like a lot of density in your in in the way that you're writing and stuff. Yeah, um, yeah.
1: So, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It's all about the the humor and the writing, and then mm. this the art is is secondary to that. Yeah. But so um, why not just write a book? Well, a bu- a, c- a few reasons. I mean I, even though th- I'm not focused on the visuals, I mean even though I'm not the uh, even though the art is not as important to me as the writing, I am of still a visual person and I love books and I love visual stories. I mean if I come up with a story, I can see it. So I am sort of just a v- visually focused person and Words and pictures just naturally go together for me. It just comes naturally. And uh, I don't know, comics just, the physical lends itself to comedy a little better. It's good to see what's happening. There's more room for comedy with film and and comics. Well, you can do visual comedy as well. You can do visual comedy, and you can do pretty much whatever you could do with prose, but you also have the visual element as well. Right. So it just lends itself better to comedy I think, visual stuff. Nice. And also, you know, if I were to I can't write prose. I don't have much talent for it. I I mean I I can do it okay, but I don't think I have much much of a talent for prose writing. So writing scripts and dialogue it just is just something I'm better at. It's better for me to just draw draw what's happening rather than describing it with prose and even if maybe i do have a talent for it but i'm 37 so if i were to it would take me 10 years even if i had a talent for prose writing it would take me 10 years or 15 years to get good at it yeah so it's just uh a little too late for that but i I prefer visual storytelling anyways
0: and now you're a cartoonist like did you ever think that this
1: kind of would happen no, I I mean I mean I don't know. I think I didn't know. Um I think um I there was an um, I did a a um an interview with Br- Broken Pencil magazine a little while ago. Yeah. It was remember. embarrassing because they had dug up this thing I said a long time ago about how I'll probably never get, you know, published by D <laughs> and Q, uh, and I had to res- my I had to respond to that to to that question by saying, oh, that's a little embarrassing. Um, <laughs> so I guess I didn't th- think I, th- but I but I think I thought it might, and I hope I was hoping it, w- it might happen. Yeah. So yeah, it's a- very exciting to have a book out with D and Q because. I was reading, you know, when I first got into comics, I was reading books by D&Q and loving all that stuff. And, um, yeah, now to have a book out with them is great.
0: And now you hang out with, like, Chester Brown and Seth
1: and Jason Kiefer. Y- y- yeah, yeah. It's pretty amazing. Uh, yeah, it's it's good to be part of the community. Yes. Yeah.
0: Nice. So you intrigue me. Uh, what's next for
1: you? What's next is... Um, another book another short story collection um the stories in the next collection it looks like they're going to be a little more on the absurd side of things more a little in the uh, in the style of night school which is uh sort of madcap absurdist stuff more more in that vein um and uh, also there's gonna, there might be some autobio stuff. Uh, oh, yeah. that'd be awesome. Yeah. Like I think there might be one sort of straight-up autobio story based on something that actually happened to me. And then there might be another uh, story that's fictional but where I have myself as the main character. Um, and, uh, and then I'm planning a longer story that's sort of similar to Night School, like very absurdist and dark nice um so yeah that's what the new the next book is looking like and um,
0: do we know when that's coming out no are you working on it now yeah or? i'm
1: working on it but who knows when that'll come out right. it'll it'll probably take me another year and a half to do to finish yeah so. also from dnq or uh, who knows know. hopefully yeah Yeah. but who knows uh, right. it hasn't been worked out yet
0: okay man uh if people want to follow your career where can they go to do that
1: well, they can. I'm on Instagram, so people can follow me on Instagram, and um, people can uh, buy the book from D and Q, uh, and that's about that's about it. What's your uh, Instagram handle? It's Nick underscore mandig, So N I C K underscore M A A N D A G. Nice cool man well thanks so much
0: you i think the more absurdist and crazy stuff that you do the less you'll be able to you know keep this persona of like this straight kind of guy because the more popular it's all gonna get on
1: un- it's all gonna unravel at some it, point yeah, i think <laughs> so
0: i think so and i can't <laughs> wait until that happens Yeah. so uh please uh you know everybody follow nick nick mandag we've been talking to And uh, we'll see you next time on Speech Bubble. This has been Speech Bubble. See you in the future, friends.
1: Never Sleeps Network.
0: This has been a Never Sleeps Network production, executive produced by Alex Ross. For more information and content, visit NeverSleepsNetwork.com. Beach Bubble on Never Sleeps Network is hosted by me, Aaron Broverman, and features audio editing from Armin Zoberry. It has announcements by Craig Mayhem and Sean Ward, with graphical assistance by Brittany Tice.